Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. And today I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cecil from, from Florida State University on her exciting new book, Mapping the Pashupata Landscape, Narrative, Place, and the Shaiva Imagery in Early Medieval North India. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Raj. So uh, of the many places we could start to dive into this work, let us, let me ask you, uh, Pashupata, what is that? What does that refer to? Okay, so the term Pashupata um, in my work is used to refer to a particular community of Shiva devotees. They're actually the earliest, the earliest group of devotees or the earliest, let's say, community that we know of, at least from textual sources. So one of the things that my book is trying to do is trace the early history of this community. Um, and understand not only how that community developed over time, but also how it developed um, geographically across different places, across different locales. Um, and the, the term Pashupata, of course, comes from a familiar epithet of Shiva, and that's Pashupati, or Lord of Creatures. Good old um, Shiva, Lord of Beasts. So exactly. so if, uh, so just to impact that, just just to sort of, Tease that out. So, if so, is that to say that 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 Shiva worship isn't older than the medieval period? When you no, say this is the first community, sure. So it absolutely is older. I mean, we have um, images from from Mathura, from the from the Kushana period that show people um, worshiping the linga. We have images that seem to anticipate the deity that we come to know as Shiva on coins, for example. Um, but what we have with the Pashupatas in not only the early medieval period, but also a little bit before that in the fifth and sixth century is this idea of um, an identifiable community of a group of people who identify themselves by this name and who understand a certain kind of set of practices or norms as um, defining their community. Um, and in the earliest sources we have, um, the Pashupata Sutras and Kaundinya's commentary on, on those sutras, um, that community is really presented as one that's exclusively male. Um, it's comprised of, of Brahmin males. Um, and they're engaged in these kinds of aesthetic antinomian practices that many people, I think, readily associate with Shaivism. Uh, people who are feigning madness or um, hanging around in cremation grounds with, with skull bowls, things like that, things that seem very, let's say, antisocial or um, against social norms. And I think for a long time, that's how this community has been uh, imagined or considered. Uh, but that's been changing in recent years, I, I would say in the past, in the past decade, um, with the gradual editing and publication of a text called the Skanda Purana. And that text is significant because it gives us a really different kind of perspective on this community. And it emerges not so much as this exclusively 
um, male Brahmin community um, engaged in ascetic and antinomian practices, but a community that's opening up or opened up to a broader, um, let's say, lay devotional um, practice and aspect as well. So one of the uh, interesting things about your your work is the way you uh, dovetail different kinds of data, or you have, you know, some people study texts, some people study mm -hmm. material culture. There are folks like yourself who are brave enough to do both and, and piece mm -hmm. them together. And so um, we'll touch on uh, the, the, the sort of different kinds of data you, you engage. But, but since you've already opened the door to the wonderful world of the Skanda Purana, <laughs> which is a textual source, tell us a little bit about uh, the Skanda Purana or uh, at least how it, how it uh, plays into your argument. Sure. So there may be um, certain listeners who are familiar with this term Skanda Purana. There's a text called the Skanda Purana that was published by the Venkateshwara Press in the early 1900s. Um, but the text that I'm referring to, um, the Skanda Purana, or what some people call the early Skanda Purana, is actually an entirely different textual tradition, which is quite surprising. Um, and it's the only tradition that we know of that actually refers to itself um, in the manuscript colophons as the Skanda Purana. So the, the text that's published um, by the Venkateshwara Press, actually those, those sections of text or those manuscripts refer to themselves as skandas, so as, as pieces or portions of the Skanda Purana. So the question prior to the discovery of this earlier text was, okay, well, what was that Skanda Purana? Because it seems that there is some kind of earlier body of literature that um, has not, you know, has not survived or is not part of uh, the received tradition. And that text was known only kind of obliquely, peripherally through references in Dharma Nibanda literature. So the authors of these bodies of literature were, were citing certain uh, prescriptions from the Skanda Purana, but we, we didn't really have the text itself. So that changed with the discovery of uh, <clears throat> different um, manuscript recensions, the oldest of which is the Nepalese recension um, of this early Skanda Purana, of this text that calls itself the Skanda Purana. And that's the text that is um, the subject of this ongoing critical edition, which has been focused um, in the Netherlands. Um, and that's the text that I'm using uh, to reconstruct or recover this early Pashupata history. So amongst other things, um, one of the things that this Skanda Purana, this early text does is give us the first narrative account of the Pashupata tradition. And it does that through a kind of etiological myth whereby Shiva is said to descend to earth in a particular place um, called Karohana, which is um, today identified as a, as a village in Gujarat. And he um, creates uh, four Brahmins from each of his four mouths. And through these agents or through these disciples, um, he disseminates this Pashupata doctrine. And these pupils then um, go forth and spread that doctrine uh, through various locales in North India. If you will indulge me, just a tiny nerdy little footnote before we dive into the material uh, content. Um, the critical editing process, where, where, is, where are you in that process? Oh, so, yeah, so I think the fifth volume is going to be coming out next year. And there are probably, I would say, at least three or four more volumes to go. So the text is quite voluminous. Great. So there is, um, 
it occurs to me as, as I'm speaking to you, there, there seems to be this parallel uh, between what's happening with the Pashupata um, narrative in the Skanda Purana and then what we see of um, um, Surya worship in the Samba Purana. And this has just recently been put on my radar because of mm -hmm. a recent publication that I was working on. Um, it talks about sort of uh, movements of the community across actual known geographical space, uh, mm -hmm. interspersed with the installation of various deities and various initiations. So yeah. maybe we can talk perhaps privately about the parallels um, between the two. So you have this, so, so, so uh, the, this uh, ancient, oh, how ancient, by the way? How, when do we get this kind of Purana? Uh, sixth century, let's say. So the, the sixth century Skanda Purana has been unearthed, and you have you have you have found it to be a useful peephole into what's being said of the life of this community. Yes, and so you're not just looking at the world within the text; you're also looking at other kinds of evidence in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this mapping of this, what I call the Pashupata landscape or the Pashupati Kshetra, as the text calls it in the Skanda Purana, um, I understand that to be a highly rhetorical textual construction on the part of these authors who are trying to locate what was likely and what other sources show to be a really kind of diverse um, community on the ground. And they're trying to find some way through this mapping, through this authoritative vision, to give that diverse body of practitioners and practices a greater coherence, right? That's the rhetorical aim of, of the text, as I understand it. And in addition to creating that coherence, they're locating it in specific places, specific kind of prestigious places in the landscape, like Ujjain, for example, one of these kind of preeminent centers of culture and religion and commerce in the pre-modern world. Um, but in addition to using the text and its rhetorical construction, I'm interested, and I have been interested to understand what other sources from this geographically circumscribed area might tell us about how um, Shaiva practitioners understood themselves to be part of this community, how they represented themselves, um, the kinds of things that they were engaged in. Um, and not surprisingly, um, when you look at those sources, which I access through inscriptions, um, through physical landscapes, through archeological sites, uh, and also um, importantly through um, images. Um, what we see from those sources is that there are, there are other kind of imaginings, there are other ways in which people understood themselves to be part of this community that are often challenging to the text. Maybe tell us, um, you know, tell us about some of the ways in which uh, the textual data um, may be at odds with uh, material culture. Sure. And I don't want to say it's necessarily at odds. I think there, maybe we can think of these as different voices, that different material sources, different textual sources present different voices. And so we need to consider all of these voices to understand, um, you know, the polyphony of the tradition, let's say. But, you know, for example, um, the Skanda Purata, while it does kind of open up to these broader Laukika concerns, it still is um, a text that's very much rooted in this kind of Brahminical tradition. So of course, the agents of, of Shiva on earth are still male Brahmins who are disseminating this doctrine. Um, but what we see on the ground, for example, in inscriptions is that it's not only male Brahmins who are involved in um, 
contributing to Pashupata religious establishments, to supporting, um, to supporting religious specialists, to being part of the tradition. Uh, we have, for example, copious evidence that merchants and guilds, so economic actors, were really integral to the creation of the Pashupata tradition, that they were actually even more than kings or royal elites, the people that we would expect to be perhaps the major donors, the major funders. Um, actually, it was these, these mercantile groups, these guilds who were really um, central donors and integral to the creation of the religious institutions that supported um, the Pashupata movements. And we also see evidence of, of women being involved. So there's a really interesting inscription from a place called Infragar in Madhya Pradesh that talks about three daughters who were, um, or three women who were the daughters of a, uh, a merchant, a local merchant. And after the death of their father, they kind of pool their resources together and they make this donation um, to this temple of Gupteshvara. And this is a temple in which Pashupata religious specialists are actively presiding. So um, they give a sense of the diversity of the community in that way. And it's not only the donors that are shown to be diverse, but we also get a sense from material and epigraphic evidence that the people who were religious specialists themselves were actually um, quite a diverse bunch. So from Rajasthan, for example, um, there's a really interesting inscription from a place called Mount Harsha. And we learn in that inscription a lot about the religious specialists who were active at this particular temple. Um, and you know they're not, they're not all kind of proper Brahmins with proper lineages. I mean, they're, they're people that are really kind of rooted in a local landscape and rooted to um, particular landscape features and the temples that develop around them. So you have this kind of local strain that's operating as well. And of course, you also see Pashupata religious specialists doing things that aren't necessarily Shaiva. Um, again, not surprisingly, I mean, they're not busy being Pashupatas all the time and temple complexes were diverse and incorporated a number of deities. So you find them um, donating to goddess temples or active in um, memorial practices. So these are just kind of some, some ways in which the tradition emerges um, as far more kind of complex and internally diverse than the textual sources admit. Certainly your use of the word polyphony, I think, is quite apt in this case. Um, do we, this may require some conjecture, but do we have a sense of, of the, the origins of this community? What do, you, what do you mean by origins? So do we have a sense, do we have a sense of whether this community originated within the Brahminic fold? Or was it something that was folded at some point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think on the one hand, it does, it does seem that at least in the Skanda Purana, that the authors are actively trying to claim this tradition for, um, yeah, for the Brahminical world or the Brahminical tradition writ large, let's say. Um, and there are certain kind of ex more extreme or more antinomian practices that say are not part of the Skanda Puranas envisioning of what the Pashupata tradition is. Um, so in that sense, maybe it's being, um, yeah, domesticated is not the right word, but it's more exoteric than esoteric, right? A lot of the earlier Pashupata literature is far more, far more esoteric, whereas the Skanda Purana is more 
um, in and of the world. So that's one difference. And that's perhaps some evidence that um, that tradition is being kind of actively incorporated within um, a more, again, kind of Laukika tradition. Um, but there's also this really interesting figure who, who is part of the Pashupata tradition, and that's Lakulisha or Lagudi in the Skanda Purana, the Lord with a club. Um, and this figure who in the Skanda Purana is kind of hinted at being um, an ectype or a representation or a kind of um, embodiment of, of the Lord, of the deity, uh, is this kind of founding figure. And images of Lakulisha as this teacher bearing the club, um, very much a kind of ascetic type, um, much predate the text. So we have um, early, we have images that much predate the Skanda Purana, which suggests that this, this figure um, was, also, was also one that was known um, in, in the greater landscape, in the greater religious landscape. So there's, there's also some kind of interesting element about, about that idea of a founding figure as well and how that founding figure um, may point to um, some kind of charismatic figure or lineage on the ground the text is also claiming. How much more ancient um, is the material culture of this founding figure? So the earliest Lakalisha images, as I recall, are yeah, fourth, fifth century. There are some images from Matura. It's fascinating. Yeah, um, so obviously, you know, there's a fair bit of conjecture in what, in what we're doing here, but it, that's the sense I got, not the sense, you know, not being nearly as versed in the data as you are, obviously, but I got the sense that there may have been snippets on the ground um, that potentially got folded into this chronic mm -hmm. narrative, which may well have been the case, for example, for the Devi Mahatmya, which we both looked at in past. Um, and there's, yeah. there's no way to really know, but it's a fascinating Absolutely. tension. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also, I mean, I don't know how much you can connect the Devi Mahatmya with particular places, but I think with the Pashupata movement, it's also something that is really tied to um, particular places and especially this, this site uh, Karohana um, in Gujarat, which is still today a place that is sort of actively engaged in this, this Pashupata movement still. I mean, this is a tradition that's been kind of resurrected in Karohana. And also interestingly, it's it's the only place that I've found that has a kind of consistent way of depicting Lakulisha, this, this Lord with the club, this founding figure. It has a really stable iconography. So he's depicted in the same way from the earliest images up until the present day. And that's something that you don't observe anywhere else in India. So it, it does seem to be that this place also has a really important um, role to play in the history of the tradition, and one that may very well predate um, the text. Now, how did you stumble upon this fascinating project? Was it um, while engaging the material culture, or was it uh, through this textual people and the Skanda Purana? How did you get here? Yeah, it, well, it was through, it was primarily through the Skanda Purana. That's sort of what started my inquiry into um, Pashupata Shaivism. And that began in 2011. Um, so I was doing my PhD at Brown actually, and I had the opportunity to go to the Netherlands uh, for a year and work with Hans Bakker, who was at that time uh, leading this critical editing project. And you know, Hans had long been someone that I admired and a scholar I had, had admired because 
I mean, this was something that he did. He was really incorporating textual evidence, epigraphic evidence, material evidence, archaeological evidence. He was kind of um, making use of all the available sources. And that, I think, has always been a kind of model for me of what um, scholarship in, in our field should be, right? That, that you can access all of the available sources and, and tell a really nuanced and complex story through them. Um, but it's also, of course, a really difficult thing to do because it means that you have to somehow get experience working with these sources and being able to travel to India for long periods of time. Um, and that was also something that, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of get some hands-on training um, through working with the Skanda Purana project and being able to go to India um, for two field seasons, you know, with um, the members of the project before I started my field work on my own. So yeah, I was really going to the Netherlands and, and being part of the Skanda Purana project that um, yeah, turned me on to this tradition and to also working with sources outside the text. Clearly this is um, groundbreaking work on um, the seminal early, indeed the earliest known Shaivite community, um, which in itself is a huge achievement. What would you say the main um, uh, takeaway argument perspective, what would you say the main takeaways of this work are? Sure. So I think one of the main takeaways or one of the kind of main points that I want to make with this book is that um, the story that the text tells, while I think incredibly important and significant, is not the only one. Um, and in order to understand or attempt to understand as best we can as scholars what's happening um, in the religious landscape of early medieval India, we do need to access all of these available sources. And I think one of the important things those sources tell us is that a lot of the kind of established narratives that we had in mind about Shaivism say that it's um, a community of, of you know, antinomian ascetic types, or that uh, when we think about temples and religious institutions, um, specifically Shaiva institutions, that we need to think immediately of kings and rulers as the primary donors and the primary architects of the religious landscape, that those things really need to be reconsidered because when we go to the evidence, when we go to the inscriptions and, and, and actually read them, um, it shows quite clearly that at this time, at least, you know, building temples and overseeing religious institutions was not yet really part of that royal repertoire. Um, it becomes so later, but at this time, there are other people and other social groups who are much more involved, merchants, uh, agrarian communities, traders, guilds, really local communities. And these religious institutions um, were really integral in kind of actively creating these communities and these Pachapata religious institutions specifically. Um, they catalyze these really kind of remarkable social synergies that bring people together. And I think that is really important for thinking about how pre-modern religion was practiced um, in early South Asia. And yeah, I think that's, that's a kind of takeaway that is significant for the early history of Pashupata Shaivism. But I think it's something that resonates um, with with kind of larger questions and issues that uh, we as scholars of the pre-modern world have to deal with. There's sort of this um, 
how, how to phrase this, the, the, the material culture um, tempers or, or, or enriches the polyphony of perspectives. Uh, it, it, I get the sense that, uh, that this work is predicated upon um, almost, uh, how do I say, almost a reticence to just look at what's in the text in terms of there needing to be some sort of corroborating material evidence mm -hmm. such that, you know, when I read a text for narrative purposes, I read it mm -hmm. for literary, ethical, you know, spiritual, philosophical purposes. I don't mm -hmm. particularly look to texts for sociocultural data. Mm -hmm. But if I were to do so, I don't necessarily know about the world beyond the text. What I know is what the world, the text is telling me about. What All I know is what the world of text is crafting. Yeah. Right. And so it seems that, that a key part of, of what you're doing is showing the utility and indeed necessity of, of corroborating with material culture claims of texts where possible. Mm -hmm. Well, I also really think, I mean, I agree with you, but I think it really depends, as, as you've kind of said yourself, on what, on what questions you're bringing to the sources, right? What you want to know, what, what you're after, what kind of knowledge you want to um, seek. Um, so yes, I guess I think of myself also as a kind of cultural historian. Um, so I'm always eager to, or trying to put things in context, not just text, but I think all kinds of historical evidence. Um, and then, you know, coupled with that, I'm, I'm also always really interested in what, you know, this sounds very innocent and simple, but what people were really doing. And of course, we can never access the subjectivities of pre-modern actors. Um, but I do think that by bringing different kinds of sources into conversation, we do get different perspectives. Um, and it's really interesting to consider those different perspectives or different voices as multiple tellings of the same story, right? So we have the Skanda Purana that gives us you know, one telling or one account. Um, and it's interesting to me then to, to complicate that. Right, to try to complicate it as much as possible through the incorporation of other of other kinds of tellings of the same history. Um, and while it is sometimes tempting, I think, to read sources to corroborate other sources, right, to kind of come to a neater historical picture, I think there's also something to be said for letting that historical picture continue to be a little bit complicated and maybe a little bit messy and to have, you know, not all of the edges neatly align, right? There are some things that, um, yeah, we can't necessarily reconcile. And that's also, I think, part of the story. Well, I mean, any epoch is going to be um, hopelessly perspectival, it seems. I mean, our very present is before, our, the present is occurring before our very eyes and to craft a narrative of what the heck's going on right now, you're really hard pressed. And so yeah. obviously there's going to be various perspectives and you know, various sort of um, peepholes into into the past and it, it, it's interesting that we sort of um, we do different things with the text but for example my work looking at Quranic narratives um, primarily as literature mm -hmm. sort of fights the impulse uh, this ancient impulse of looking to them for historicist purposes mm -hmm. and so work like yours is sort of um, corroborates the notion of um, 
looking as the text as a text, right? As a narrative, right? And the narrative may or may not, uh, like any narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in a, a modern news narrative, may or may not accurately represent what's happening out the window, mm-hmm. much less an ancient, you know, um, uh, religious narrative. So I find that quite fascinating. What um, uh, you looked at a, f- a fair bit of data, and this must have taken you. There's obviously uh, <laughs> a great many hours <laughs> of trucking <laughs> and research went into just this. Just a few, just a few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Maybe you could talk about one of the sites. Or what I want to ask you is what really uh, surprised you or stood out for you or, you know, I want to leave it as open as possible. So. Sure, sure. So, yes. So for this book, I did about two years of field work um, because the main locales that I wanted to explore um, in you know northwest India are kind of at a distance from each other. So I... So in terms of geography, I had three primary kind of case studies or case locations. So one of those was in the North Konkan um, around Mumbai. And I was looking at some cave temple sites there, um, Elephanta, Yogeshwari, Mundapeshwar, and some other locales around Nasik in Maharashtra. And this, this kind of region corresponds to what the Skanda Purana calls the Saya Mountain, which is their southern boundary of the Pashupata landscape. That was one of the regions I considered. Um, the other was more in central India, so in Madhya Pradesh, around Chittorgarh and Dashapura. Um, and that corresponds to, um, yeah, this kind of crossroads region of the Skanda Purana's uh, narrative landscape, where Lakalisha's pupils are kind of moving through. And then finally, I ended up um, in northwest Rajasthan, um, around... Um, yeah, Sapadalaksha. So this is kind of north of Jodhpur, um, around Shikar, and this place called Mount Harsha. And this region, um, which is kind of known for its salt lakes, so it's a major salt production area, um, was, I think, um, the Jambu Marga, which is another prominent locale of this kind of Purana. So um, I explored a lot of different temple sites and archaeological sites in the process of kind of moving through this landscape. Um, and a lot of that material, of course, doesn't make it into the book. Um, but I was able to focus on some really interesting places. And I think the place that most captured my imagination was Mount Harsha, which is this mountaintop temple complex in northwest Rajasthan. And it gains prominence um, of later in the early medieval period, so in the 9th and 10th century, because it is the um, royal temple complex of the Chahamanas, who are a localized ruling lineage that uh, gains prominence first as subordinate or affiliated rulers with the Pratiharas, and then they really kind of claim their own territory. And one of the things that they're able to do is control this mountain, this Mount Harsha, which is a regional landmark. I think it's a regional landmark for trade. It's positioned amidst these salt lakes. So it's a really economically important um, and lucrative position to control. And one of the first things they do when they claim this place is they um, build a temple for Shiva uh, by the name of Lord Harsha. Uh, and they commissioned this um, really long Sanskrit inscription that tells about, you know, their donations and also gives the lineages of the various Pashupata religious specialists that were active at the site and also involved in, in donating and um, uh, 
making built interventions in the landscape. And then finally, it has an interesting prose section that records a lot of donations made to the temple by local people, farmers, um, traders, uh, horse traders that came from, you know, further northwest in India, salt merchants, all kinds of people were coming to this temple and were engaged in making donations, both both local and kind of trans-regional. So for that reason, it's it's a fascinating place, but also in terms of the material remains, the material culture, it's absolutely fascinating because before I had gone there, I'd read the inscription, of course, so you get the impression that, you know, there's a mountaintop temple, it's this really imposing structure, but you don't get any sense of what else was going on there. And then when I went there for the first time, I was absolutely overwhelmed at this, this kind of temple complex, which was absolutely massive. I mean, at least the remains of, of, you know, 23, if not 25 or more temples. And the iconography is also really complex and interesting because again, while the inscription tells us a lot about this place as a Shaiva place, um, the iconography tells a really different um, kind of story. Actually, images of Shiva or of kind of Shaiva themes are um, not so, you know, not so copious. There aren't so many. There are um, a few interesting lingas, and there's uh, a lingod bhava murti. So this image that shows uh, the manifestation of Shiva in this kind of fiery column, and Vishnu and Brahma uh, searching for the end of that. Um, but aside from those icons, um, the material evidence shows um, sort of gives gives us evidence that there was a really active Vaishnava community, um, also very unique kind of Vaishnava images there. Um, Surya imagery is also really interesting. So it really suggests that this was a place where um, the identity of Shiva and Surya was also um, coming together and being enmeshed in really interesting ways. Because one of the things that we have, um, or that we start to see in early Rajasthan of like the ninth century are these, what I call incorporative icons. So you get kind of um, these fusion images in which uh, you have uh, icons that combine elements of, of Vishnu and Shiva and Brahma and Surya but with Surya as, as the main deity or as the primary deity. So I think that's making a kind of theological claim that you know, all of these other deities are affiliated with Surya, but he's still primary. And we see a lot of those actually from Mount Harsha, which you know, suggests a little bit of you know, religious competition that again, you don't get any evidence of that from the inscription. And finally, um, the goddess imagery is also really complex and interesting because it suggests that there was a thriving yogini cult um, at Mount Harsha. And there's also this very kind of strange uh, structure that survives there. It's this open-aired uh, temple kind of complex that today is a Bhairava shrine and also partly a residence. But it really, and this is also where most of these yogini images and most of these goddess images are found. So it really suggests to me that this was one of the kind of quintessential open air type yogini temples. Um, and that, that was also kind of an integral part of this temple complex, which again is not um, something that's mentioned in the inscription. So these are all things that you are able to see, um, you know, by spending time at a place and visiting a place. And I've been to Harsha, I think five times. So it's also, you know, it, it takes, it takes a long time, or at least it took me a long time to kind of make sense of what was happening with that 
material archive or with that visual archive to kind of understand or try to understand at least how those various facets of the site um, kind of fit together. So that was interesting and, and challenging and yeah, rewarding at the same time. So please tell me that, that luscious data will find a home somewhere. <laughs> so there are, there are a lot of images of the goddesses, especially some interesting yoginis in the book. There's my favorite is this elephant headed yogini. So yeah, she's there. Seems that uh, a crucial part of your work is this idea of um, place and placemaking, and even uh, even sort of religious authority, the intersection of religious authority and place placemaking, sacred geography. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe even some, if if you do rely on 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 theory, you can share that. Or, or this seems to be a huge theme of your work. That's I think even understated within the work that you, you've come across some fascinating insights mm -hmm. for theorizing place, I feel. Mm -hmm. Is, is mm -hmm. that something you want to say something about? Sure. Well, I think one aspect of this kind of theorizing of place comes through in, in the analysis of the textual data. And I make some arguments about the rhetorical aims of, of mapping and kind of what maps can do, um, where, whereby they kind of create, you know, models for a kind of, society or models for a community, community, that they're kind of idealizations in a particular kind of way, while at the same time actively, you know, creating boundaries and determining, you know, who's in and who's out, who's part of the community and who's not and where the community is. So there's a kind of geopolitics um, at work there as well. And what you see as far as placemaking, I think, in the inscriptions um, reflects I think the efforts of, of donors, uh, primarily of non-royal donors, to use religious institutions as ways to create a sense of kind of being at home in the world or to create a sense of stability or stasis. And I think it's interesting that we see so much evidence of that in these so-called market towns, um, these kind of hattas or mandapikas, these merchant towns that develop in early medieval India, particularly in Rajasthan, where you have people kind of coming from all over. Um, and I think one of the things that they do, or one of the things the inscriptions show us that they do to, to create a sense of place, to create a sense of belonging that is grounded in a physical locale, is to invest in religious institutions. And we also see there some really interesting collective inscriptions. So these aren't records that say, you know, such and such king did this or such and such, you know, elite donor did this. The records in which people come together, they make kind of corporate donations, um, they tithe, they give taxes on the goods they produce, they give donations that are kind of quite simple and modest. Um, and they do so all the while repeating that, you know, they are the people from X place or Y place. So these donations and these religious institutions give people the opportunity to perform or to enact this sense of belonging. And it's a belonging to a religious tradition, but it's also very much a belonging to a particular locale. Because often we see that the deities that they're donating to, there's one particular deity called Kamyakeshvara, who's the tutelary deity of the town called Kamyaka, right? That they enforce this sense of being in a particular place and being in a particular community. So I think there's 
there's rich scope for thinking about placemaking in that respect as well, not only in the rhetorical confines of the text, but in the, um, in the physical landscape as well. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, is there really an aspect uh, of, of the book that um, you hoped we would touch on that we haven't? Um, I think the only other thing I would want to bring up is, um, is the iconography of La Colicia. So one of the things I do, I have one chapter that's devoted to tracing the ways in which this figure, this Lord with the club, um, how his visual representation changes over time and how changes in that visual representation, I think reflect uh, larger changes that are happening within the community, um, whereby this um, kind of quintessential aesthetic type figure with the club, it's ephalic, um, becomes two arms typically, becomes um, more and more a kind of representation of the deity Shiva. So it becomes multi-armed, becomes uh, uh, adorned with all of the um, kind of accoutrement of Shiva and has the weapons that we consider to be his emblems. And sort of how that change in visual representation, I think represents a broader change in the Pashupata tradition whereby that community kind of gradually gets phased out um, and is replaced by by later forms um, of Shaivism and later communities. So um, while I spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the Skanda Purana's mapping of this landscape and this Pashupat tr tradition, it's one that ultimately um, does kind of change in such a way that it is historically phased out. So it's also a really interesting way, I think, to study change over time. Right? You can study the, the changes in the text over time, but you can also use the changes in the imagery as a way to um, read changes in the larger tradition or the larger religious landscape. That's certainly fascinating. Um, what now? What are you working on now? Oh, uh, thanks for asking. So I am making a change. I'm trying to do more now with Southeast Asia and working more with epigraphy. So I have a new project that I am currently doing research for this year uh, with funding from the ACLS and the Getty. And that's to um, look at temple landscapes in Laos and Cambodia, Vietnam, and Indonesia, and think about how uh, built interventions in the landscape, temples and monumental inscriptions were kind of tools of political power um, in the formation of the earliest Hindu polities of Southeast Asia. So yeah, this is a very new thing. Um, but one of the places that I'm really interested in right now is a site called Wat Pu. So this is in Southwest Laos. And this place was an important early Shaiva site oriented around this mountain with a um, natural linga. It's called Linga Parvata uh, in the inscriptions. And this really is the, becomes the heart of the Khmer Empire. So this is really kind of where Hinduism in the Khmer Empire starts. And so right now I'm kind of focusing on tracing um, that development through the built landscape and also through the inscriptions. And it's interesting because we have a wonderfully preserved epigraphic corpus from the fifth century all the way up until you know, the 11th or 12th century. So you can really see um, how the manipulations of this landscape, um, um, yeah, change over time and how this place is built up as being kind of the preeminent seat of Shaivism. Sounds like another quite fascinating project, uh, assuming we all uh, uh, survive uh, 
the current situation. Exactly. We'll to- <laughs> Assuming I'll be able to travel again at some point. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, uh, you'll have to return, um, return to the program to share what you find uh, in Southeast Asia. Gladly. <laughs> All right. So uh, for those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Cecil, or Dr. Elizabeth Cecil on her uh, fascinating uh, new book, Mapping the Pashupata Landscape. Um, it just occurred to me uh, that um, I could take requests for those of you who have works that you would like to be um, featured on the program. Maybe you can send me an email uh, with some suggestions or some feedback at raj at rajbalkarn.com. Uh, Liz, it was really great having you on the program. And I Thank hope you to so have much. you on in future. <laughs> it was great. Thanks so much. Until next time, everybody, keep reading. Take care.